In the normal course of our Lord's Day ministry, we're in the midst of a study through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we'll be focusing on a passage found in a different book, but written by the same author. For Luke is the author of both the Gospel, which bears his name, and the book of Acts, commonly known as the Acts of the Apostles. When referring to his first book, his gospel, Luke says that the first account I, am, I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's how he describes the gospel of Luke as he begins the book of Acts. So in the mind of Luke, the book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus was doing and teaching So we should think of the book of Acts as the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than the acts of Peter and Paul and the early church. They were but instruments in the hands of their Lord and Master. We're going to be looking this morning in Acts chapter 2 beginning with verse 22. The background of this, of course, is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. There has been a visible manifestation of this. Tongues as of fire have come and settled upon the apostles, and the apostles have spoken in languages that before that day they had never known. This raised a question, as you might imagine. And Peter answers that question. And the passage we're looking at this morning is, in large part, that answer. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. 
Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Father, bless your word to us this day. Well, here we are on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has manifested himself with great power, and there were on that day remarkable things taking place, not the least of which were the apostles speaking in language they had not previously known how to speak. These were not simply ecstatic utterances, nor were they some kind of angelic language. They were human languages, known and recognized by the others who were there that day listening to them. The text tells us that those who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost recognized these languages from the regions from which they came. These Galilean fishermen were speaking the languages of Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Cretans and Arabs. And as you can imagine, this called for an explanation. How could these uneducated Galilean fishermen be speaking these languages they had never before known how to speak? And so Peter, by way of explanation, stands and speaks for the rest to explain what is happening. And he explains, first of all, that what is happening is a fulfillment of a prophecy spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes back in verses 17 through 21, and he quotes from chapter 2 of Joel's prophecy. Now, The weird thing here, of course, is the response of the people. They hear these disciples, now apostles, speaking in their own native languages, and their explanation is they must be drunk. I've been around drunk people. They do not speak in languages they have not known before. They have a difficult time speaking the languages they do know. And so Peter explains this. They're they're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day, says verse 15. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Centuries before. And he explained that in verse 16, and then he goes on to quote the words of God spoken through Joel, that prophecy which Joel spoke centuries before these events, which now foretold a new age, the new covenant age. The age of the Spirit. And the Apostle Peter told us that throughout the time of this new covenant age, this great and good news of the gospel would be proclaimed. And that good news is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now when Peter spoke of salvation, he meant that we would be able to be free from everything that keeps us from being the kind of men and women we were intended to be. 
That is what salvation is. It is a restoration to what God intended when he made mankind in the first place. Delivered from the bondage of sin and death while entering into full, intimate, personal communion with the God who created us. And the way to enter into that salvation, Peter says, is to call upon the name of the Lord. Having said that, Peter drops a bomb upon all those who are assembled there that day. Because he proclaims to them that the Lord upon which men must call in order to be saved is none other than the one they had crucified only 50 days prior. Right there in the city of Jerusalem. A crucifixion for which they themselves called and approved the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. The words of Peter fell upon the ears of those people with great power because he spoke, obviously, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter would go on to set before them an argument which begins with the humanity of Jesus and ends with a clear proclamation of his deity. And in that argument, Peter moved with such precision and such irrefutable proofs that before he was finished, some 3,000 people were crying out, asking what they should do. And they called upon the name of the Lord, and they were saved. The first movement of Peter's message is the foundation of historical fact which Peter lays before his hearers. You see that in verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And in that introduction are the great events upon which our Christian faith rests. The life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that these events are presented by Peter simply as facts. Ordinary history. Not some kind of spiritual history that you have to interpret. They are presented as normal events such as would be recorded in any daily newspaper which might have been published at the time. If these events had not occurred, Paul will argue later, then those who believe it would be of all men most to be pitied. But Peter stands up and says, listen, all of you here, you saw these things. You know what happened and you know them to be true. And it is upon the historicity of these events that our faith rests. It is the historicity of these events that motivated Peter and his apostolic brethren to give their lives for the good news that he's proclaiming. 
there on that day. They did that because they were eyewitnesses to these events. They knew them to be true, and so they gave their lives for that truth. Apart from the apostles themselves, even if these events had not occurred, we would know, who would know better, rather, than these people to whom Peter was addressing. These people had been there in Jerusalem when all of these events occurred. Now, we've already mentioned that those in this crowd had traveled, many of them, quite a long way to get to Jerusalem. They had gathered for the feast. But it's a long trip to Jerusalem from all of these places that Peter lists earlier, or I should say Luke, as he quotes those who were there that day, Parthia. Mede, Elam, Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt. You didn't travel all that way just for one feast. They didn't come just for Pentecost. They had come earlier for Passover as well. And so they were there in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. And they were there in Jerusalem when God raised Jesus from the dead. They had been there during that Passover week when the city was so stirred with the arrest and trial and death of Jesus. Peter would have been the worst con man in the world to stand up before this crowd and declare that these events had taken place when everyone who was listening to him would have been prepared to contradict him and to say, no, 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 we were here, we know what happened, and we know where he's buried. We can go see his body if you want. But Peter declares these events with such boldness as to make clear that he did not in the least Fear contradiction. He simply sets these events forth as facts of which his audience was already well aware. That is not to say that they understood the meaning of the facts. As yet, they did not. But they themselves were witness to the events. And so beginning with those facts they were all aware of, Peter begins to drive home to their hearts these indisputable proofs which lie behind the claims of the Christian faith. In other words, Peter begins to attach meaning to the facts. Each of the events he mentions here is designed to teach a very important Truth. First, there is the life and ministry of Jesus. You see it there in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. He calls upon the crowd to witness that these events are true. 
Jesus was a man, says Peter. He was a human being. And in that sense, he was a man like anyone else. He was not a specter. He was not a phantom. He was not some kind of spirit being that simply gave the impression of being a human being. He didn't simply appear to be a human being. He was a man. And yet he was more than that. In his humanity, he identified with us, but he was also set apart from us. He was special. He was unique. And Peter says that his uniqueness was authenticated by God. He was a man attested to you by God. That is what Peter claims here before these people. They were observing, when they observed Jesus, a man authenticated by God. And how did God attest to the uniqueness of Jesus? How did, G- did God authenticate Jesus? He did so, Peter says, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Now these are very important things. Those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, those who were students of Scripture there in Israel during the ministry of Jesus, they would have known what they were seeing when they saw Jesus perform miracles and wonders and signs. Because it was stated in the Old Testament that you will recognize the Messiah when he comes because he will perform miracles and wonders and signs. In Isaiah chapter 29, for example, it's stated that he would perform certain kinds of miracles. And then that's expanded in chapter 35. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Then the eyes of those who are blind will be opened, and the ears of those who are deaf will be unstopped, Then those who limp will leap like a deer, and the tongue of those who cannot speak will shout for joy, for waters will burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And that is a messianic prophecy. Those are signs. Those are things that Scripture says only God can do. He will do these signs in order to authenticate and attest to the the Messiah's ministry. And so the Lord Jesus performed his miracles, his wonders, and his signs, and when people saw them, some got the message. Some understood. Perhaps the great majority did not. That's certainly true. In fact, when some of them saw the signs, they made the connection with what Isaiah said. Others saw the signs and said, well, this must be Satan. In Luke chapter 7, we read of a man that Jesus raised from the dead. And he did it publicly. There were witnesses to Jesus' miracles. And Luke records the reaction of those witnesses. He says several things happened. First, fear gripped them. Perfectly understandable. After all, it's not every day you see someone raised from the dead. Second thing they did was that they began to glorify God. Again, a perfectly appropriate response. And as they glorified God, they said this, God has visited his people. 
Why was that their conclusion? Because they were people of the book. They knew what God had said through Isaiah. They knew that when the Messiah came, he would do these kinds of miracles. Likewise, in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, what does he say? Rabbi, we know that you've come from God. Because no one can do these signs that you do unless God sent him. Unless God is with him. So the miracles and the wonders and the signs are designed to mark out the Messiah and to give evidence to those who would receive it that the Messiah had come. And that is what Peter points to. When he wants to tell this crowd gathered there at Pentecost who Jesus is. The goal and the aim of these mighty works is to identify Jesus, to authenticate him as the Messiah. And so he heals the leper and he gives sight to the blind. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He stills the storm. He casts out demons and he raises the dead. And what does Peter say about these miracles beside the fact that of their purpose being the attestation of Christ's Messiahship? Peter says that his listeners, those who were gathered to hear him on that day, they knew it. They knew. He says, listen guys, I don't have to spend a lot of time on this point in my sermon. Because you guys were all there. You saw these things. He performed these miracles and signs and wonders in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And before Peter ever speaks about their culpability in the crucifixion, they already know where he's going. These are God's signs. God attested by miracles and signs and wonders that this man was the Messiah. We saw them. He did them among us. And then what did we do? We crucified him. That had to be in their minds. They had to see where Peter was taking this. Even before Peter made it explicit. So Peter first speaks of the life and ministry of Jesus, and then he goes on to speak of the death of Jesus. In that death, he says, is revealed the purpose of God in history. This man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The death of Jesus was accomplished, he says, by you. You who are gathered here before me on this day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, you did it. You did it through the hands of the Gentiles, the godless Romans. You did this, he says, but nevertheless, behind what you did was the sovereign predetermination of God. And I wonder if you've come to grips with that yet. God planned the cross. Isaiah says, it was God who crushed him, putting him to grief. 
The cross was no accident in the life of Jesus. It was predestined, predetermined by God the Father from before the foundation of the world. As the Father and the Son and the Spirit gathered together in counsel amongst themselves and determined to redeem a people for their own possession. Peter then indicates that the only way God could deal with the problem of human evil, that basic problem with which we all wrestle, was by the death of Jesus. It had to be done as it was. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, arranged it just as it came to pass. Predetermined. We've all heard Individuals referred to as having kind of a Jekyll and Hyde personality. That's a reference, of course, to Robert Louis Stevenson's novel about a man who by day was an upright, respectable, honored Dr. Jekyll, but by night turned into a monstrous criminal, Mr. Hyde. The reality is that we are all Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hydes. We are all capable of putting on a very respectable respectable front. We've all got it on right now. We put it on, and we make sure it's on well when we come into church. But we also know that within us lurks an evil, malevolent nature, which responds with malice and viciousness and hardness and callousness and lovelessness and unforgiveness. And we are all capable of this because we are all fallen human beings. And even at moments when we want to do good, we feel the evil nature coming out. The potential for evil and the reality of evil is in us all And God says the only way that sin and wickedness and evil can be dealt with is through the death of Jesus. There is no other way out. Nothing else will work. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And the blood which takes away sin must itself be blood that is pure and sinless. And there's only one person who qualifies to do that, and that is Jesus Christ. This is the predetermined plan of God. That is the message of the Bible from beginning to end. That God will send a Messiah, the Son of God incarnate, and he must die to redeem us from our bondage to sin. To take us who are spiritually dead and raise us to life. That's the Christian scandal. There is need for redemption before the experience of the kingdom. But notice that though this was the predetermined plan of God, those men who crucified him are guilty. They cannot say, well, we only did what God made us do. We only did what was predetermined by God, therefore we don't have any blame. Peter won't have that. He says, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
In other words, God's prede- God predetermined the death of Christ, but that fact does not mean that the deed of those godless men was any less a crime or that they were not responsible for their decisions and their actions. Now, if you are puzzled by that, welcome to the club. That's okay. We can be puzzled by these things. We're not God after all. And if we could figure out everything there was to figure out about God, he wouldn't be God. It's okay. The important thing is that we see this in the teaching of Scripture. That God finds no difficulty affirming the predetermination of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, the sinful responsibility of the men who crucified him. Gentiles and Jews. But Peter doesn't even stop there. There's another fact about Christ that he brings out. And that is his resurrection there in verse 24. You put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And here is revealed the power of God among men, the resurrection power of God. Resurrection power is the ability to bring life out of death, to correct a situation which is utterly hopeless, to change a person who is irredeemable. And yet God is able to redeem the irredeemable because of his resurrection power. He was able to raise Jesus bodily from the dead. And he is able to raise us who were spiritually dead and bring us to new life. Man is always trying to find ways to beat death. There are companies which, for a fee, will freeze your body or just your head, preserving you in liquid nitrogen until the day when it might be possible to heal whatever killed you. Twenty years ago, there were all kinds of stories about this being done to the baseball player, Ted Williams. You might remember that. It's also been suggested that if you feel yourself about to die, you can go down and get yourself deep frozen while you're still alive. And then when science has supposedly solved the problem, found a cure for whatever disease you're dying of, they'll thaw you out and you'll get a chance to go on living again. false hope. It is false hope. Even if it were possible, can you imagine being brought back only to discover this is the world you have to live in now? But no one will be brought back. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. But my friends, those dreams are such a pale imitation of the sure and certain hope of resurrection. Peter says, we disciples 
are the witnesses of these things. We saw him. And the remarkable thing is that in this crowd of those he has just accused of killing the Messiah, not one voice is lifted in protest. To me, one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus is right here. Peter can stand up in the city where these events had taken place less than two months earlier and tell these people that Jesus had risen from the dead and not one voice challenges him. They knew that the body was not there. They could go out to the tomb and see that the body was not there. And they also knew that the authorities who had every reason to produce the body of Jesus could not. And so not one voice is raised against what Peter is saying. Instead, they stand there in mute and stricken silence as the spirit-empowered apostle declares their guilt in the death of their Messiah. Peter, however, is not speaking from his own authority, though he possessed apostolic authority. Peter spoke with the authority of Scripture. For these events were not only predestined by God, but they also had been revealed by God through his prophets, particularly in this context, King David. So if Peter points to what David has said, says, David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted, moreover my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And the point Peter is making here by this quotation of the 16th Psalm is not merely that David had predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead. It is also that David had declared that the resurrection was absolutely necessary in view of the life that Jesus had lived. David wrote the psalm in the first person, but he was clearly not writing about himself. He was writing about someone else. There would be another whose soul would not be abandoned to Hades. There would be another who would be the Holy One. And because he would be the Holy One, his body would not be permitted to undergo decay. That's the prediction of David. And Peter makes the point that we've just stated, that David could not have been talking about himself. He goes on in verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Now one of the arguments of skeptics about the resurrection is to say that these predictive psalms, such as Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 and others, that point forward to Christ are really not predictions at all. That they only reflect some personal experience that the psalmist was going through. 
and that it is quite wrong to view them as pointing forward to Jesus Christ. But you see how Peter refutes that argument. He says you can't say that about the 16th Psalm because it's talking about a man who is not abandoned to Hades. It's talking about a man who does not rot in the grave. And that couldn't be David because David did die and David was buried and his tomb is still here with us. He remains dead. So David must have been speaking about someone else and that someone else is Jesus Christ. His soul did not go into Hades, and his body did not rot in the tomb because death has no power over him. So that's Peter's argument, but he's not done yet. There is a question yet to be addressed as a result of everything that he's been saying. And that question is, so what? What do we do now? As a result of everything you've been saying. He answers that question in verses 33 to 36. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And once again, the apostle turns the whole crowd, turns to the whole crowd of of witnesses And he makes them witnesses to his claims. He says, you are seeing right now the proof of what David predicted would happen. And he moves from Psalm 16 to Psalm 110. And there in Psalm 110 is the prediction that God would say to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you ruler over all, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, if, you, if your Bible has uh, a helpful format, you'll notice that first line, the Lord said to my Lord. Lord is the same in both cases, both entirely capitalized. If we were going to retranslate this back into the Hebrew, it would say Yahweh said to my Yahweh. There is the deity of Christ. And Peter says, as a result of all of this, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. These things, Peter said, the tongues as of fire settling upon our heads, Speaking languages which we have never known, these are proofs that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Christ. And suddenly, all of this made perfect sense. The full force of Peter's arguments hit home with irresistible power, and the crowd realizes what it is they have done. This one 
whom Peter had proven by irrefutable evidence to be the Lord, the Messiah, was the one they had crucified 50 days earlier. Let all the house of Israel know. Let all the house of Israel know that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Let all the house of Israel know that you crucified him. And they knew. By the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, they knew. No wonder we read in verse 37 that they were pierced to the heart. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And there is where Christianity rests its case. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The declaration of Peter on this day is one that no one can avoid. Your very life is dependent upon him. He is Lord over all things. He is God's Messiah, God's anointed one. And sooner or later, you will have to deal with him. You will either embrace him in repentance and faith and kneel before him as your Lord and Savior now, or you will refuse and on some day already determined in the plans and purposes of God, you will kneel before him as your judge. Those are the options. But be assured, one way or another, you will kneel. The question of the crowd was, what shall we do? And it ought to be your question as well. Peter's answer is wonderful. It is The Christian gospel. Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It would take another sermon to do that justice. But today, here is what you need to know about Peter's answer. In its essence, it is a glorious declaration that Christ is not angry with those who come to him for grace. He will receive us when we call upon his name, when we recognize the fact that he is Lord and Messiah, that he has the right to lordship over our lives. What shall we do? Peter says, repent. Repent and come to Jesus. You may not have been there 2,000 years ago yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You may not have cried out to Pilate for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. You might not have cried out in mockery as Jesus hung on the cross, but you might as well have. He went to the cross for the sin of men and women living in the 21st century just as surely as he went to the cross because of the sin of men and women in the first century. And because he went to the cross, we here in the 21st century can be forgiven just as those who were listening to Peter in the first century were forgiven. 
Because of his resurrection, we here in the 21st century can be justified before God, just as those who repented of their sin and trusted in Christ in the first century were justified before God. There is only one way. There is only one name. There is only one Savior and there is only one Lord. He is the one who was dead and is now risen. He is Jesus the resurrected Son of God. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you, Father, for the proofs which Peter set forth on that day of Pentecost. Thank you, Father, for your grace. That grace which is enough because you are powerful unto resurrection, that grace which is enough to save anyone who will come to you in repentance and faith. Thank you, Father. Make yourself known today and draw your elect to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.